Good morning. There's two readings this morning. Both are taken from Second Thessalonians. We're going to start in chapter 1, reading verses 1 to 10, and then to chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. So we'll start with chapter 1 of Second Thessalonians, verses 1 to 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. And then chapter 2, verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Thank you very much. Um, good morning. Let me say hello. Um, I'm one of the ministers here, Roger, and it's really good to have you with us. Um, please do keep that passage in 2 Thessalonians open in front of you. That will definitely help me as we go through and might help you, I hope. Um, we're continuing this series um, in 2 Thessalonians, um, and as ever, we need God's help to understand his word. So let me pray as we begin. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. Thank you that it is a lamp unto our path. Thank you that it guides us both in this life and for all eternity. Help us now with whatever else is on our hearts and minds this morning. Help us to hear you and be shaped by you. Because we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, if you dig into that uh, salmon pink Fred, Ari, you'll find an outline uh, like this, which says where we're going this morning. Um, and the, the um, issue I've put at the top of it 
uh, is thanksgiving, being thankful. That's the issue at the start of our passage, isn't it? We, we read that bit from chapter 1 just for some background for those who have not been around. But our actual passage starts, chapter 2, verse 13. And the first note is thankfulness. Verse 13, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Thanksgiving is a big deal in the Bible. It's actually one of the signs of worshipping an idol, a false god, is to not give thanks to the real God. Thanksgiving is a huge part of the Christian life. It's one of the things that protects us from someone coming along and promising that they have the solution um, or kind of they can fill the lack that we have in Jesus. Actually, thankfulness protects us from that. And so this morning, as the rain pours down, it's a good moment to stop and consider how thankful am I just at the moment? You can see it's important to pull to give thanks. Verse 13, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord. And he does mean always, because this is actually the second time in a short letter that he's given thanks. If you cast your eyes back to chapter 1, verse 3, 1, verse 3, very similar. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, as is right. So thanksgiving is something Paul wants to do, something he knows he ought to do, and something he practices regularly. I think he's writing down these prayers of thanksgiving as models for us to remind us of everything we have to give thanks for and to encourage us to join in his healthy habits. So then, how's it going at the moment for you, giving thanks to God? I appreciate if you're not a Christian, uh, you won't be giving thanks to God. Striking it, um, my daughter's school they sang this great song about giving thanks, trying to encourage the children to be thankful. Apparently, it's good for your mental health. They didn't specify who to be thankful to. Well, you can't if you don't believe there's a creator. I'm curious that it's good for humans to give thanks. Of course it is. We're creatures made to give thanks to a good God. A few years ago, I remember hearing about a Christian who was so worn down and kind of beaten down by life, by the strains and struggles the heartaches and battles of following Jesus, that he was, he was starting to wonder about giving up, or at least giving up serving, giving up the ministry he was involved in. He was actually a Christian leader, a church leader, a minister. He went for a walk with a friend and told him all about how he was feeling. He asked advice on, do you think it's right? Should I make a change? Should I give up my vacation? At which point the friend said to him, I want you to start every day of the next week writing down 20 things that you're thankful to God for. Then come back and we can discuss whether to give up in ministry. He did do it. It helped him hugely. And he's still serving the Lord decades later, persevering now in this habit of regularly thanking God. Now, of course, the times we're least likely to give thanks to God are the times when life is hardest when circumstances are most trying, when, when we feel, feel kind of utterly beyond ourselves. There must have been times for the fledgling uh, church in Thessalonica. It's a young church plant, and they'd faced lots of persecution. Just look back at chapter 1, verse 4. 1, verse 4, in all your persecutions, in all the afflictions you're enduring... As with many places around the globe today, including one of the ones we just prayed for with J&R, Thessalonica was not a comfortable place to be a Christian. 
When Paul first planted this church, uh, there were riots so bad that he had to leave the town in a hurry. And that opposition had continued since. There was political opposition, personal opposition. These Christians faced, faced attack spiritually, economically, physically, and personally. It was not easy being a Christian there. And yet Paul models that even in the, bit, in the midst of those battles and those struggles they're facing, there are real reasons to give thanks. We've got three lessons today and from this short passage. Uh, three of them, give thanks, stand firm, and pray on. Give thanks, stand firm, and pray on. And give thanks is where we start. And the point is, whatever circumstances are going on, it's right to give thanks. But what for? especially when it feels like there isn't much actually in our life to raise a smile about, when it feels there's much to make our hearts heavy, from sickness to grief to opposition to heartaches, struggles with mental health, sadness at the realities of a fallen world, how broken everything is. Really, what do we have, thank- what do we have to give thanks about? Well, in the chapter one thank you prayer... The thankfulness on Paul's heart was that these Christians were still going. Not just going, actually, but still growing against all the odds. They'd become Christians, and life had got harder. Wave upon wave of opposition and suffering had crashed upon them. And Paul says, well, praise God that you're still going. Verse 3 again of chapter 1. We are always to give thanks to to God for you, brothers and sisters, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. That's a good thing in the hardest of times to pause and give thanks for. Thank you, God, that we're still going in the battles, still standing. That's testament to your grace. But then here in chapter 2, verse 13, the reason for thankfulness is different. Um, Just look at it again with me, verse 13 of chapter 2. We ought always to give thanks to you, brothers beloved by the Lord, Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here the thanksgiving, it's not actually about their present progress. You're still going, you're still growing. It's about God's past action, his choice to save them for this glorious future. So here's our first point in full. Give thanks to the loving God who chose to save us. Give thanks to the loving God who chose to save us. Whatever else is going on in life, the Christian can say, it is well, it is well with my soul. We are always to give thanks because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Now, sometimes people can feel a bit nervous about the idea of God choosing people to be saved. Sometimes we can tie ourselves up in knots, wondering, am I the chosen one? What if I'm not? Or we can get kind of hot under the collar about how is it fair that God could choose some people and not others. Some would rather cut these bits out of the Bible than mention it repeatedly. But the reality set out in the Bible is that actually no one deserves to be saved. That is, if God acted in nothing but justice, then all of us would be facing the consequences of our words and thoughts and deeds. 
which would mean facing his judgment, his blazing righteous purity. So quite simply, if God hadn't chosen to reach out and save individual people, there would be no hope. We would have never chosen him, we would have never loved him if he didn't first love us. So actually, rather than being tied up in whether we like the idea of God choosing, a far healthier response is to just get on our knees in grateful awe, just wonder that he would have chosen anyone, chosen us, loved us when we still rebelled against him. And actually, in some ways, this is even more clear, even more stark when we realize what 2 Thessalonians has mostly been talking about. Uh, Last week, Robin was taking us through chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, which were thinking about the day of the Lord. It's partly why we read that bit in chapter 1. I wonder if it struck us if we read it, this talk of the day of the Lord, this, this return of the Lord Jesus, a coming day of judgment where Jesus will judge the living and the dead. And it is a sobering and scary day. The Bible says there'll be this great division between those who have found forgiveness and trusted Jesus for forgiveness and those who have refused him. Now, much of chapter 2 was explaining to this young church that it hasn't happened yet, that this is still to come. But there is lots of scary things. Talk of a great rebellion, that's in verse 3. Talk in verse 9 of spiritual evil forces being at work before this day comes. And most sobering of all, in verse 10, there's talk of people refusing to love the truth. That is, refusing to accept the good news of Jesus and so be saved. And then, verse 11, most scary of all, God handing them over to the consequences of that. That is, if people say no, no, no to Jesus and his forgiveness, there comes a point when it is too late, when God gives them what they want, confirms them in their rebellion. Verse 11, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. That is a desperately scary picture. But against the backdrop of that picture... People saying, I don't need to be saved. I don't need Jesus. I don't want forgiveness. I don't believe there even is a day of the Lord. And God saying, you've said that so many times, it's now too late. Against that backdrop, God, in his grace, has chosen to save people. See how verse 13 follows on straight after it. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you to be saved. God has done in their hearts the opposite, the reversal of what's natural for human beings. So rather than refusing the truth, well now, the end of verse 13, there's belief in the truth. Rather than loving unrighteousness, well now the Holy Spirit is sanctifying, making them holy. Notice how personally committed God is to this rescue project. All three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, are involved personally in this love story. 
So loved by Jesus, verse 13, beloved by the Lord, chosen by God the Father, because God chose you as first fruits, sanctified by God the Spirit. That is, God has gone all in to rescue people from this fate, to rescue us from this, if we're trusting in Jesus Christ. That is an amazing truth. It is something to give thanks for whatever is happening in life, even on the worst days of life, when nothing looks bright, everything is bleak or hard, wearying or painful. Lift our eyes in thanks for the God who chose to save. And actually, I I love that little phrase, he chose you as the first fruits to be saved. That is to say, his salvation plan, his his choice to save, isn't limited to just those few believers in that small church in Thessalonica. No, they are the first fruits, the sign that much more is to come. In our garden, we're um, we're in first fruit season with our uh, vegetable plants. Um, I'm really excited about runner beans at the moment. If If you have a conversation with me, it's likely to come up. Um, I don't know what it is. I think because I've always lived in cities, I genuinely am amazed that you can go from a small seed to actual vegetables that you can eat. Amazing thing. It's, veg- it's runner beans every night at the moment. Um, but we get, we get like three or four a day. It's not many so far. But that's the first fruits. That is the start of what will hopefully be a bumper crop. And the point here is these individuals that God chose to save in this small church are just the first fruits. You see them, and you know a bumper crop is coming. That's the shape of God's gracious love. Not a stingy one, two, three, four, but a multitude, a crowd that no one can count from every tribe and tongue, including a crowd in this room and a crowd in churches all over the world. In fact, even with us, we're not, I trust and pray, we're not the the only people God will reach out to in this place. It's our hope and our prayer that actually we will be able to give thanks over the next year, over the coming decades, of many, many people brought in to this bumper harvest. That's our first lesson uh, this morning. Give thanks to the loving God who chose to save us. Secondly, though, verse 14 and 15, Paul turns from kind of modeling thanks to give us an actual straight command, an exhortation, Um, And and this, again, flows out of the day of the Lord. So in light of the day of the Lord and seeing how serious that day will be, well, of course we would give thanks that God has chosen to rescue us. But also in light of the day of the Lord, and it hasn't happened yet, well, point two, stand firm in the gospel truth you received from the apostles. Stand firm in the gospel truth. In some ways, if you were here last week, it's not a surprise that Paul's reminding them to stick with his words. We saw back in chapter 2, verse 2, that they were potentially shaken in mind or alarmed by other people coming with different messages. He said, verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way. How do we we keep ourselves from being deceived? Well, verse 15, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught by us apostles. Keep a tight grip on what we've already heard from Paul and the other apostles. The Christian message is complete until Jesus returns. 
It's not going to change. So beware the podcast or the YouTube preacher or the excitable group who turns up saying, oh, we now have direct access to fresh revelations from God. We have the inside scoop on what the Spirit is saying to the church today. Actually, we know what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church today because he breathed out these words through Paul. Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. In the Thessalonians' day, they they could hear it kind of spoken from Paul or written in his letters. For us, all of that's now being collected and put in the New Testament. So this is saying, the application for us is saying, hold fast to what the Bible teaches. This is the actual message that saves us in here. This is what keeps us safe for that coming day of the Lord and transforms us along the way. Just look at the way verse 14 flows into verse 15. Let me read them again. To this future, this great future, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught by us. See the point? If you want to make it to that end, if you want to be safe at that end, if you want to grow more like Jesus and be ready to meet him in glory, well, this message, this Bible message of forgiveness in Christ by faith alone in him, that's the message to hold on to. Why do Christians need to be told this? Well, because... The Bible is precisely the message that gets us into trouble. It did then, for them in Thessalonians. It does today in our culture. Precisely sticking to the Bible's message about how to get saved and what we need saving from, what sin is, the fact that judgment is coming, the fact that Jesus is the only way, these are the things that cause opposition. Now, from culture to culture, the the reasons people don't like that vary. In some countries, you must conform to the will of Allah or be punished. In other countries, you must not put any allegiance over the Communist Party or face consequences. In others, you may not dare challenge secular relativism that says everyone can be right at once as long as no one says anyone is wrong as long as you make no truth claim. In others, you cannot refuse to obey the supreme leader. It varies the the reasons why people don't like it, but it is precisely the message of the Bible they don't like, that every human being needs saving, and only Jesus can. That's what causes the pushback and the heat. Jesus' words that no one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus' words that God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so the temptation on us to, to try and loosen our grip on that real gospel can actually be very strong. The temptation to shop around and think, well, well there might be a form of Christianity somewhere that, that kind of talks warmly about Jesus but just isn't so angular, so narrow, so sharp-edged. Do we really need to say people are wrong or lost or in need of saving? Do we really need to be public about what we believe? Couldn't we just be entirely private? Is absolutely everything in the Bible God's word, or does it just contain God's word in there somewhere? 
Can we be kind of more New Testament Christians than Old Testament? Leave that bit behind. Isn't Paul a little bit harsh? Isn't he misogynistic? We don't need to say, follow everything he says, do we? Leave him behind. Can't we just be Jesus people, actually? Just stick with him and leave the others, the apostles, behind. Actually, not the bits that, where Jesus speaks about hell or judgment or sin. I mean, that doesn't really sound like him, does it? That's not the kind of Jesus I like to think of. Of course, it goes without saying, those options are out there. The religious supermarket is full of spiritualities. Paul is saying only one of them keeps you safe on the day of the Lord. Only the original, the genuine article. While we were away on holiday with the kids, we we saw two kinds of boats. Both were brightly coloured. Both were boat-shaped. They were boats. One was an inflatable kayak. And it looked loads of fun, to be honest. I I had kayak envy. It was lightweight, it was cheap, it was easy to carry. They even sell them at Lidl, I discovered. You can pump them up yourself. Then we saw the four million pound jet-powered Shannon-class all-weather lifeboat at Ilfracum Station. It's capable of riding out the strongest of storms. Apparently it can protect people, even if the waves turn it upside down. It can self-right, can hold them watertight. From a real distance, they both looked great. Bright, boaty. The kayak looked really fun as well. I think it would be easier to fit a kayak into your life. I mean, you can just pack it away. It's low cost. Pump it up yourself when it's convenient. I can tell you which boat I want to be in if the storms come. Paul says our gospel is the one that saves There is a day of the Lord coming. Do not pump up your own boat and think it will save you. Jesus' death on the cross is the only way to be safe from that judgment. That's our second point. In light of the coming day of the Lord, give thanks to the loving God who saved us and stand firm in the gospel truth you received from the apostles. But finally, just before I sit down, there is one more thing. And actually, I'm really glad for this third thing. This is verses 16 and 17. I'm really glad for this because I think it can feel pretty daunting, that that second exhortation to stand firm. When you're living in a, a culture, in our culture, I think increasingly hostile in many ways, at least at the political level, to many of the ideas of the gospel. And for them, I mean, it must have been so daunting to be told that actually there's a way to go before Jesus returns and you need to stand firm. Small communities of Christians, believers that some of our global mission partners are in contact with, in contexts where it's really deeply dangerous or unpopular to be a Christian. Well, how are they ever going to stand firm when life gets hard? If it's another few decades before Jesus comes back or longer, how are we going to keep going? Well, this is our final point, point three. Pray on for Christ's comfort and strength to keep serving him. Pray on for Christ's comfort and strength to keep serving him. I do love it that the passage ends here. I think if you didn't have this point, the flow of the passage would have been, well, thank God that he saved us, but Jesus hasn't returned yet, so you've got to stand firm in the gospel 
And then it would be a kind of, oh, okay, try your best, grit your teeth, pull your socks up, try and hold on. Well, no, we are to put effort into the Christian life. We'll see that next week. Idleness will get tackled. But actually, all the power, all the strength to keep going in the Christian life is a gift from God. It's something to be praying about regularly. Verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. I love this prayer. Notice it builds on what God has done. Um, he has loved us and give, gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. That's what God has done. And so that's what the thank you prayer was about. But now that gives Paul confidence to pray about the present. Praying for strength to keep going. May God comfort our hearts. And strikingly, not just strength to hide away or comfort to just kind of duck down until Jesus returns. No, he wants to establish them in every good work and word. Actually, a brilliant picture. It's echoing his prayer back in chapter 1, verse 11. Let me just read that again. 1, verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. You see, in both prayers, this, this desire for Christians not just to hide away and waste our time until Jesus returns. We're not just in a kind of holding pattern above the airport, not really doing anything or going anywhere until Jesus brings us into land. No, we, are, we have good works and good words to be getting on with. I think that's capturing both living for Jesus in every area of life and speaking about Jesus. In every context, we have opportunity. So living for Jesus in every good work, that is every context he puts us in, serving him. So home life, community life, church life, work life, which the next chapter gets onto specifically. We want to be good employees or good bosses. We want to be good citizens, good sons or daughters, brothers, sisters, spouses, grandparents, and so on. All of that good work, serving Jesus until he returns. But also good words, establish them in every work and word. I do think this word here is, is speaking about evangelism, about reaching out with the good news of Jesus. I'm not just saying that because of the kind of church we are. I'm saying that because if you turn over the page to chapter 3, verse 1. 3, verse 1. The very next thing Paul does is ask for prayer that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honoured. He's asking for prayer for his own witness, his own spreading of the good news of Jesus. So then, in light of the day of the Lord, we're to pray for Christ's comfort and strength to serve him in all we do and, yes, in what we say, praying for opportunities and taking opportunities to speak of the Lord Jesus. Now, of course, neither of those things are easy to persevere with, especially when we're under fire for being Christians. It's very tempting to slack off and not try hard if you feel like you're not treated particularly well by work or other contexts. It's tempting to just try and do the minimum. I mean, Jesus is coming back. What does any of this work really matter anyway? More of that next week. 
But of course, for Christians facing opposition, whether the the real affliction that they were facing physically and in other ways, or for us, the kind of the looks and comments of disagreement, the cold shoulders, it is just so tempting to go silent, isn't it? To not open our mouths and say something. To not really aim for reaching out as a church. Can't we just be happy ourselves? Paul says, no. In light of the coming day of the Lord, given he has showered his love upon you, the first fruits, given there's only one gospel to save, the gospel from the apostles, well, pray for equipping to persevere in good works and words. Pray that we keep living and speaking for Jesus. That's a great thing to be thinking about, isn't it? When Grant and Yeeker are just heading to Glasgow um, and Will and Sarah heading to Redeemer. What a great thing to be thinking about. It's easy to look ahead to a life of ministry. I know this personally and I'm sure Will will feel this. A a life of, of kind of church leadership or Bible teaching ministry and think, how am I strong enough for that? To which the answer is, you're not. You're not, Will. You know that. But Jesus is plenty strong enough. In whatever walk of life we've been called to, to serve him in, Jesus is plenty strong enough to keep us going. And I do think, as we close, that is a really timely reminder for kind of this time in the year, the, the summer period. Uh, different ones of us here will be at different stages of the summer experience. Some of us will just be about to go on holiday, absolutely exhausted and looking forward to it. Others will be just back, still exhausted and wondering what happened there. Others will be thinking, why does everyone else get holiday allowance? And I still seem to be working through the summer. Actually, all of those situations can be times when it's hard to maintain this kind of perspective as a Christian. In the summer, all routines of Bible reading or of church, uh, they're at risk of slipping or hard to maintain. Sometimes we can find our thoughts have not at all been on the return of Jesus, the day of the Lord that's coming, or rather just kind of getting through this week with the kids not at school, trying to juggle that, or or what we're looking forward to as we rest. And it's absolutely good to rest. It's part of God's created order. It's good for us. But when we have a pause and we're able to take stock and maybe look ahead to the next year of serving as a church family, It might be tempting to think, whoa, really another year? Tempting to to step back a bit. Or to forget what a privilege it is to be a Christian. Or just to get out of the habit of praying for help to rely on ourselves. So can I encourage us to take a moment out to think just a, a time of reflection on how is my prayer life just at the moment this summer? Am I thankful for God's goodness to us? Am I asking for help to keep going in service? Let me give us just a moment to reflect on that ourselves, just a minute or two, and then I'll close us in prayer and introduce our final song. So let's just take a moment to reflect on what God said. I'll lead us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your amazing grace. 
We pray you'd help each of us individually and us together as a church family to grow in regularly giving thanks, always giving thanks for how you've saved us in Jesus. We pray too you'd help us as we look to another church year ahead to stand firm in the one gospel and once for all delivered to the saints. And we pray for help. We do pray that you would comfort us and strengthen us. Father, pray particularly this morning for anyone for whom life is a, is a real battle at the moment. That just keeping going seems beyond them. We pray that you would strengthen them and help us to look out for one another and be a means of your grace to each other. We pray all this in Jesus' name and in light of his coming return. Amen.